Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. From Madison, Wisconsin, this is Jim Healy, the Cinematheque Director of Programming. While our campus theaters remain closed, the Cinematheque continues its series of view-at-home cinema programs this week with a tribute to a unique and important film programmer that we're calling Film as a Subversive Art, Amos Vogel at Oberhausen. This showcase of remarkable and innovative short films from the 1960s reflect the personal and eclectic tastes of Amos Vogel, founder of the influential New York screening society Cinema 16 and co-founder of the New York Film Festival. Vogel was also a teacher and the author of the seminal book on experimental and avant-garde cinema called Film as a Subversive Art, originally published in 1974. His papers are currently archived at the Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research here at UW-Madison. The film selections in this program all received some of their earliest screenings in West Germany at the International Short Film Festival Oberhausen, where Vogel served as a member of the international jury and later as an American programming correspondent. The program has been curated by Tobias Herring of the International Short Film Festival Oberhausen. The four view-at-home selections are, from 1963, The House is Black, the only film ever directed by Iran's celebrated poet Farag Farokasad, and Joseph Killian, directed by Pavel Juracek and Jan Schmidt, an absurdist comedy that heralded the Czech New Wave. Then, from 1969, Feine Spielwaren, or Superior Toys, directed by Gunther Ratz, a provocative East German attack on American war toys, and Kirsa Nikolina, an American production by the Swedish avant-garde filmmaker Gunvor Nelson that intimately captures the birth of a child at home. Beginning November 19th, the Cinematheque is offering unlimited viewing of these four outstanding short movies through December 3rd. To receive access, send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu. That's W-I-S-C dot E-D-U. And remember to include the word Vogel, that's V-O-G-E-L, in the subject line. No additional message is required or necessary. We will reply with instructions on how to view the movies at home. The presentation of this program is fully supported by the Consul General of the Federal Republic of Germany in Chicago, and we thank them for their support. On this episode of Cinema Talk, I talk about Amos Vogel with film curator Tobias Herring, an independent curator, researcher, and writer based in Berlin, who currently directs the Reselected program at the International Short Film Festival Oberhausen. This is an ongoing series of programs based on the festival's print collection and paper archives. Herring's ongoing research around Amos Vogel focuses on Vogel's relations to the Oberhausen Festival and his role in the advent of a new film and cinema culture in Germany in the 1960s. Herring is also the editor of several anthologies of film writing published in Europe. Here is my conversation with Tobias Herring. Tobias Herring, welcome to Cinema Talk, and thank you very much for putting together this special program for us. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Let's begin with uh, Amos Vogel. Who was he exactly? Well, Amos Vogel was a film curator and, uh, and a writer. Uh, he's, I think he's best known for being the, the initiator and co-founder of Cinema 16, a film society that was active in New York, was founded in 1947 by himself and his wife, Marcia, and ran until 1963. And 
became a kind of cult institution in, in the New York film culture scene and is considered in many ways a founding effort for film clubs uh, worldwide for and, and, and also for, for a specific form of programming and curating which came into the world with, with Cinema 16, a quite um, unusual way of curating that likes to put films together that on the surface are creating juxtapositions or from very different sources and different aesthetics. Um, and that basically show the broadness of the, of the art of cinema rather than um, favoring a specific uh, genre or, or aesthetics. So the types of films he liked, you, you might say, would be limiting to just call them experimental films or avant-garde films. Oh, yes. He never really uh, used a specific term to describe the kinds of films that he liked. He, he was, I think his, his, his vision was uh, on cinema as, a, as, a, as broad as, as possible. He wrote and published uh, a text on, on, on curating Cinema 16 uh, in the early 50s in, in film culture, where he says just that. He says, um, if we take the broadest approach possible, then we make sure to not censor uh, neither our, ourselves nor the audiences. He was a fervent adversary to, to any form of censorship, including self-censorship. He and, and, and his wife, Marcia, would create programs that put scientific films. He was very fond of scientific uh, films, especially medical films, next to, to early avant-garde films or to also to classics and to, to comedies. And uh, as long as they were available on 16 millimeter, all of these projections, as far as I know, were, were made in 16 millimeter. And they were made in big cinema halls. By its high time, it had 7,000 members. A season would consist of consecutive five-day five screenings of uh, three programs a day and they were usually packed and the cinemas were as large as 1,500 seats big auditoriums that put, that the programs would fill three times a day um, that this must have really been an extremely uh, intense experience and, and period that was very groundbreaking and shaping for a lot of for a lot of people in New York at the time that later would become the New American cinema scene. Well, so the audiences were sometimes made up of just enthusiastic filmgoers, but a lot of the time they were fil filmmakers themselves or filmmakers who, in training, I suppose, or who were inspired by some of these screens. Who were some of the artists who Vogel gave uh, audiences their, their first glimpses of? Among the American or the New York-based film scene was based almost everyone that you, you would you know, it would come to mind, like Kenneth Anger, Stan Breckage, Gregory Markopoulos, uh, Bruce Connor, Shirley Clark, um, then a bit later, Jonas Mekas, and, and so on. Uh, George M. Um, Ed Amschwiller uh, was uh, Carmen Davino. <clears throat> Ed Amschwiller was, was a very close, I think, also friend to Amos Vogel, as far as I, I know. His films would would feature regularly at Cinema 16. Also, Breckage and Anger were very, uh, the, especially their early films were shown, all of them were shown at Cinema 16. And Cinema 16 was also a distribution body. So it would also distribute these films uh, afterwards to, uh, at least in the United States. To other and societies it, showing like-minded yeah, programming around universities. the Universities, yeah. It, it, became, uh, it became, I think, one of the first really like substantial a distributor for independent or, or experimental film in, in the U.S. You mentioned Jonas Mikas, and even though Vogel wasn't a filmmaker himself like Mikas, 
I, I suppose there are some people who see Mikis as Vogel's successor in the way that he became a writer, a critic, and then an exhibitor of films himself. The story between Mikas and Vogel, and, and I mean, they are famous for having had more or less like a rivalry. Within my research, I, I came across a lot of documents and correspondences and proves of that they had a very they had a very close and intense relationship but um, also a very problematic one full of mm. conflicts and ups and downs and and very emotional outbreaks I, I find that aspect which provides a lot of gossip and, and and speculations maybe less interesting than the conceptual differences between them Mikas was um, always said that uh, Cinema 16 was his university. Him and his brother Adolphus attended these screenings from the day they set foot on the, in New York, uh, more or less. So they they already came as cinema buffs after their five years of um, meandering in post-war Europe or actually Germany. But as soon when when he started to make his own films and when he gathered a film scene around him. They realized they didn't get the full, let's say, the 100% appreciation by Fogel of all of these films. Fogel created programs where Stan Breckage uh, put it later. Some of these filmmakers felt they were being made part of a freak show. Let's say part of the controversy was that Mikas and, and the group of people around the filmmakers co-op that he founded, PNM Sydney and, and, and Kuberka, they were all filmmakers. As you said, Fogel wasn't. And they were in search of a, a new way of making films and a true form of cinema, which in a way was also Fogel's search. But Fogel would also see this in existing films. He would see facets of this new and revolutionary and, and eye-opening way of making films also in older films, in, in classical films and in maybe forgotten films from the 20s. And, and Mikas and his group were more... Um, imagining this as something to come, I think, and they consider themselves more and more the kind of the, the prophets of this of this new new cinema, mm. and the ones who were whose historical task it was to produce it and to make it. The, this quote by Brackage with the Freak Show, I just found interesting because it shows that this what Fogel was was is now among curators very much admired for for creating these very diverse compilations of films uh, was not um, appreciated by everyone. Some of these filmmakers who would see their own films next to a film showing uh, the dissection of an uh, of, a, of a dead animal or something. Right, which which in itself isn't, he's not putting up as uh, uh, an exciting new piece of filmmaking, but in, as you say, juxtaposition with other films, he is creating a, a cinema experience. He's a showman, in other words, uh, yeah. more more interested in the, uh, Vogel's more interested in the exhibition than in the, uh, say, you know, the, the, the whole show, as opposed to the individual artists and the individual films. Yeah, that's true. Breckage, Breckage uh, in, this, in this interview that I was quoting from, which is an interview with Scott McDonald, Breckage says that he felt that Mekas, which is why he also joined Mika's group later on and more steadily than he was working with Vogel. He said Mika's was more interested in the aesthetics and that was his way and, and, and Vogel, that was not the primary interest of Amos Vogel, the aesthetics. I think that's one way to put it. Another way to put it is that Vogel was really interested in cinema as a social phenomenon in this whole social context of a space where people, a crowd of people comes together to, uh, to share 
the cinema experience and to be to be overwhelmed to be surprised to be shocked and and also to feel that among this group of audiences um, there would be controversy not everyone would would react in the same way to what they would see and and this kind of social let's say also democratic space that cinema is and can be is what Fugel was interested in and what what he was trying to create with with um with his programs from cinema 16 he became one of the co-founders of the new york film festival yes uh, what kind of programming did he bring to new york i mean was it just a matter of moving up to 35 millimeter what were what what directed his programming uh, during the years he was with the new york film festival i think that is his share or the part that he was more responsible for was uh, short films Fogel had had a had a strong interest from the beginning at Cinema 16 short films were were very important and it, it had a very prominent role in his programming and and he would his all his whole research his whole attempts to get access to films also from abroad especially from Japan and 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 later Europe would focus on short films also because short films were already then considered a more experimental turf than the feature length production. I think you discovered in your research that he had uh, just as contentious a relationship with Richard Roud, his co-founder, as he did with Jonas Mikas. Is that is that right? Yes, they their also their relationship was um, was intense. Uh, I think it was quite productive, but it was also it was never without conflicts. Every year <laughs> was it, their correspondences are full of uh, trying to face their differences and making them productive i would say and that's that's great to see because they really found ways to accept each uh, the very different approaches they had to programming and the tastes they had in films to let that result in a diverse program rather than a, a kind of a compromise program do you have any idea what it was that led to vogel leaving the new york film festival it was certainly not to do with with Raud. Uh, Fogel was employed at the Lincoln Center. He was the head of the film department. He had started that in 63. And the first thing he did was install the film festival, the New York Film Festival, and hire Richard Raud as a programmer. And then, but then throughout those years, he was hoping and he was kind of living on the kind of promise by his um, superiors that the Lincoln Center would sustain a, a film center in the sense of a study center, a daily program with several cinemas, a, a cinematheque, and would become a, a major hub also of production even for independent films, something that he, what he thought Cinema 16 would have become had it lived longer. Hmm. And, and uh, by 1968, he realized that the will to create this was not there anymore in the institution and that he was living on a, on a dead dream in a way. And I think that was the reason he gave up. He basically resigned at the end of, at the, at the end of 1968. Well, what did become a reality at Lincoln Center during his lifetime, and he lived a long life. He was 91 or 92, I think, right, when he died? Yes, he, he died in 2012. The, the idea of a film center, you know, and, a, and a, an ex exhibition that went beyond the film festival to a daily, to daily exhibitions became a reality, but never... It, really the center of production, I guess, that he that he imagined. I want to jump ahead just a little bit. One, one of his great contributions to film culture is his book published, I think, in 1974, uh, yes. film, film as Subversive Art. Yes, Film as a Subversive Art. Widely 
circulated, taught in classrooms. Norman Mailer made a quote or a blurb or, or I don't know if it was a review of the book, that it was the most exciting and comprehensive book he had read on avant-garde, underground, an exceptional commercial film. I mean, the book, I guess, yes. summarized his life work up to that point, what, what he believed the heights of that cinema could reach uh, and, mm. and films he wanted to highlight. What were the, what were the commercial films that uh, appealed to Vogel, the films that I guess would show, you know, less in cinema clubs and in, in commercial cinemas? What, what, what did he see as the kind of ultimate or, or, or worth in, worthy of inclusion in, in his book? One of the films we're going to show is a, is a movie that kind of was at the beginning of the Czech New Wave, Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would imagine that th- there's a group of films, you know, Milos Forman, Ivan Passer. Yes. That, you know, as they moved into feature filmmaking was 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 something he, he could embrace. Yes. Maybe not, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but surely. Well, uh, yeah, no, that's that's true. I mean, well, let's say uh, Roman Polanski. Um, right. He uh, Repulsion is, of course, part of this uh, features in this book. And is certainly a film that 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 he would appreciate for stepping over um, formerly tabooed lines. Right. Uh, uh, films by Dujan Makaveev. Uh, he also was uh, he 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 liked um, the films by Antonioni. He was an admirer of the work of Rossellini. Uh, all these films. He also showed these films at Cinema Sixteen. Hmm. Uh, not Antonioni. That was before. That was uh, came later. But Rossellini. You know, before the publication of the book, he became involved with the short film festival at Oberhausen. Can uh, before we talk about his role there, can you talk about uh, that festival, which uh, yes, you're you're currently a curator for, and its history, and 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 then how how Vogel became involved? Yeah, so the 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 Oberhausen International uh, Short Film Festival as it is called now, was founded in 1954. Uh, Oberhausen is a, is a middle-sized industrial city in West Germany. And it was, uh, it was not a very obvious uh, place to, to host a film festival, especially not a short film festival. Uh, it came about because um, the founder, Hermann Hoffmann, who was then the, also the director until 1970, and he wanted to start giving especially teachers and people who are in education, political education, a sense for cinema and for using films in their work, in schools and in, in political education. And, I th- and I'm just uh, describing this context at length because I think it's quite important to know and it's quite important to imagine Germany, post-war Germany, uh, not even 10 years after the end of the Second World War, uh, after two or three years of allied educational attempts that were also called re-education of the Germans, in which cinema and films played uh, for a short time in the in the late 40s a quite significant role. So films were used to what they called re-educate the Germans to exercise the ghosts, uh, the specters of, of fascism and Nazism and racism. Mm. And films were used in a, in a way to to do that. So um, I, this is for me is an interesting, and, and it's also, it's, it's not me that basically says this is important, but this was uh, an interesting and important background for the founding of the festival, because they knew this is basically what 
a lot of their audience would would still think of when they think of cinema and education. But now th it was 10 years later and they saw maybe a chance to to start something new and to to reappreciate cinema as something that can also broaden your horizon without the force of a uh, occupational force that forces you to watch certain films for your embitterment. Um, but I think this is an interesting situation in which the festival was founded and that it was specifically founded as an, not even as a festival, but as a conference where um, films were to be seen as objects of, of um, political education. Fugel's first visit to Oberhausen was in 1959. Um, he came as the director of Cinema 16. And um, already in 1960, he was a member of the international jury uh, in Oberhausen, a task which he would uh, accept for four years in a row until 64. And then, and then the festival asked him to be the official correspondent, that means film selector for the United States. Uh, and he did that um, and acted as, yeah, as correspondent and contact person for the festival until 1970. 69, 70. I imagine during the years when he was on the jury, he was already acting unofficially as an advisor uh, for films being selected. Yes. From from the correspondences, I know uh, this goes back yeah, until the first his first visit, actually. You know, it was not like today where you're in the International Festival, you have 15,000 people running around. It was a handful of people that would meet. It was a rare and important occasion to exchange films and, and knowledge and recommendations. And, and I'm sure that Fugel was very active in that from the beginning. He would specifically recommend films from his uh, context in New York, which uh, he was very connected to. Even before he was the official selector, films by Shirley Clark, uh, Ed Amschweller, Stan Breckage, Kenneth Anger, Bruce Connor, and Bruce Bailey would show up in the festival program. And I'm sure that Fugel was one of the one of the people who, who was involved in recommending them. And, and and I'm sure also his visits to the festival as a member of the jury also fed his programming in New York because he would be seeing international films. I know I, was it was it in Oberhausen he discovered Polanski or was he already showing uh, Polanski's films in New York before he? He's, uh, Polanski uh, he actually. I think the, he discovered Polanski in, in, in Brussels in mm. 1958. It was the first time that he actually traveled to a festival in Europe, to a film festival, which was the Experimental Film Festival in, in Brussels, organized by Jacques Ledoux, mm -hmm. um, the later founder of the Belgian Cinematheque. And, and Fugel, Fugel was, in, was there in 1958. Uh, it was a festival where the American films did very well. A third of the of the offering was American experimental cinema. Stan Brackett received an award for his entire oeuvre. So this was an important moment at 58. And I guess that it was it might also have been the the visit where he realized that there was that Oberhausen existed as an interesting platform. Hmm. Uh, not very far from Brussels actually. So so the next year he would come to, to Oberhausen. I think Oberhausen for him was a source of new international avant-garde, basically to international new uh, young filmmakers' productions, and and to get a you know to get this kind of broad and 
expanded uh, picture of cinema that he was always um, craving for. And and you mentioned his teaching, and that's really after he left his programming roles at the New York Film Festival and Oberhausen, it was his teaching and, of course, the publication of his book that really sustained him for the last 50 years of his life. Is that right? Yes. Uh, he was a teacher at, at the Annenberg uh, School of Communication, I think it is, at, in, in Philadelphia. And he took that post in, I think, in 74, and until his retirement, I think, in 1991. Which uh, wasn't such a bad commute for him. He was definitely a, a longtime fixture of New York. Can you tell us anything else about your research? What other areas you're, you're focusing on? Well, the, the background of the research is a, is a broader um, archive research that is that is founded or that is departs from the from the archive in Ober, in the of the short film festival in Oberhausen. And uh, the idea is to look at an archive not only as a as a great collection of films, but also as a kind of a trace of a, of a social history, an accumulation of, of material that, um, that puts films in, in a, in historical perspective. My, my research is always looking at being aware of the kind of films that are there, creating programs with them, but appreciating them often by also reading the correspondences that relate to them, how they were selected by whom, why they ended up in the archive, etc. What importance they had at, at the time they were they were presented at the festival. It's these kind of things that basically lead us to history uh, in a broader sense, and not only film history. And and I came across the correspondences with with Amos Vogel uh, that started in the in the early '60s, and especially then when he was the correspondent, and he was a very critical of the kind of um, especially the kind of politically often a bit lopsided programming uh, in Oberhausen. It was, it, was a, it was a very leftist festival, but that was not the problem for, for Vogel. But he felt that the problem is not the politics, but uh, the idea that films are only interesting if they are obviously political. And what does that mean? And he posed this question and he created a sensitivity in Oberhausen to uh, experimental cinema and uh, revolutionary forms and aesthetics also being quite a political matter to, to be recognized by a festival. And that's what Oberhausen, I think, learned from him over the years. Um, mm -hmm. just, a, just a note about the research you've done here in Madison. Mm -hmm. uh, the, I know the Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research or the WCFDR has the Cinema 16 papers and I know you were looking at 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 those is there is there are there other files uh, the, uh, are there other personal Vogel files that were there or is it just papers related to cinema 16 oh no there there's much more there is um, basically uh, the I found that the his estate is partly uh, uh, archived at the Columbia University and partly at the Wisconsin Historical Society and I would say it's about 50 50. He, let's say he was an archivist of his own work, apparently. I, I know, um, I have a good friend here in, in Berlin, uh, Stefanie Schulte-Strathaus, the head of the Arsenal um, Film Institute, uh, who knew Vogel personally in the uh, last 10 years of his life and visited him a lot in New York. And she told me that there was a room uh, where he kept his papers and was it was an archive. It, it, had, it was, he always knew where, where every small piece of paper uh, was. And he kept everything in order, and that's the way it, it was then donated to to these two institutions. That means what you get is there is um, 
is his files on on thousands of films. He would kept he would keep a file on basically every film that that he ever saw with a certain interest. He would keep uh, files on people that he corresponded with. So you could you can look at correspondences he had sometimes over thirty years with people like uh, Parker Tyler, um, Peter Weiss, Gregory Markopoulos, um, Stan Brakhage, etc. Um, and in these film files, you get his his screening notes, which uh, I find quite important, uh, quite interesting. He would virtually every time he would see a film for the first time, he would have a notebook on his lap or on his table, and he would he would take notes while he was seeing the film. And, and he would keep those and they would often become the base of the short synopsis that he would write for programs or also for what then would come in up into in the book, Famous as a First of Art. A lot of these short texts that he, that he has there for the films were already drafted when he, when he saw them for the first time. And, and I think this is all very interesting because it shows how he worked and what, what it meant to, to be a, to be a curator and, and someone basically living inside cinema. And, yeah, it's an invaluable it's, collection for anyone interested in film curation and film programming. It's also a, a rare thing. All right, well, let's talk about the four films, uh, all outstanding, that you curated for this special program. Uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 we have four films that cover the years that Amos Vogel was involved with Oberhausen. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the first two are from the, uh, from 1963, if we take these in chronological order, and the, mm-hmm. and the last two are from 1969. And so I gather that uh, the first two films from 1963 reflect his uh, years as a, as a juror. Uh, Farrell Kazad's The House is Black, and Pavel Juracek and Jan Schmidt's Joseph Killian. So these first two films were, were, were films that he was involved with, seeing them as a juror. Was he seeing them both for the first time? Yes, I would think in both cases that he actually saw them for the first time in, in Oberhausen. Do, do you mind if I read something very short? Uh, from, all, um, from a letter or actually a telegram that Fogel sent to to Richard Raud, um, or that it was it's part of the preparation of the New York F- uh, Film Festival in 1964, and Fogel was very much in favor of showing the House is Black. Uh, he had recommended it to Raud. I think Raud saw it in Cannes because it show it also it was also screened in Cannes that year, and Raud was really against it. And Fogel wrote in this telegram where they are already exchanging for several weeks uh, arguments and they are in the midst of this argument he writes and the film is referred to as the leprosy film because it uh, it is a film that was shot in a, in a, a leper colony the leprosy film is first class human document i recommend it for the new york film festival see it you'll die but not all in life is pretty and demi like this refers to the french filmmaker jacques demi and I refuse to be put off by anything, this is underlined, anything that human beings are capable of or do or show or make films about. Once you are put off by that, you are on the road to perdition, self-censorship, not showing large d'or and other things too horrible to mention. 
I feel funny today and my style reflects it. I think this, uh, this, is, this is a very interesting approval of this film and, and it shows the emotional effect that the film had had on, on, on Vogel when he saw it probably two months earlier in, in, in Oberhausen. He's taking a shot at Jacques Demy, <laughs> uh, who, who Richard Raud, of course, was greatly in favor of. What, when was this telegram? Was it 1964 or 63? Yes, 1964. So it was right after the Umbrellas of Cherbourg had won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. And he actually adds in brackets, I, I skipped that. He says, not, every, not all in life is pretty and Demy-like, in brackets, see Richard Raud article in Sight and Sound. So he refers Richard Rao to an article by himself in Sight and Sound. I don't know what this article was, but Fugel was a, was great in arguing. I mean, he was he was respecting the power of a good argument, and he was often able to produce good arguments. I think. Well, who who won that one? Did it did the House's Black show in '64 at New York? Actually, I wanted to check uh, the other day to make sure, but I haven't been able to do that online. Oh, I uh, yeah, I'd, I I guess I'd like to know myself. I do know that it showed. And my my guess is that that Vogel lost that fight, and it didn't show. But because it did show in 1997, uh, while Vogel was still around uh, at the New York Film Festival, along with Abbas Kiarostami's Taste of Cherry, huh. which had which won the Palme d'Or oh, okay. that year. I know that Kiarostami was greatly influenced by both Farokazad's poetry and and The House Is Black uh, as a film, and. You see it uh, in his work, especially the scenes in the in the classroom um, mm-hmm. at the end, to, towards the end of the House is Black, which mm-hmm. you know uh, Kiarostami made countless films that are you know that are that are set in classrooms. So I know that it it, it showed at the New York Film Festival in '97, but I don't know if that was bec- you know that was because uh, Kiarostami requested it in '97. It mm-hmm. could have been. And shortly after that, it got released on DVD here in the U.S., and that, and that was its widest distribution at this point. But the version we're showing is a new restoration that was just completed uh, last year at the Cineteca de Bologna mm-hmm. by uh, Eshan Kobasht, who, yes. whose, whose film, Film Farsi, we're showing this week uh, as we're recording this. Ah. Oh, that's interesting. Good. I picked this this film because... You know, in this context, it's, for me, it was very important because it's a film that obviously Fogel was, uh, that was a very important film for him. The kind of defense he gives to it uh, in this telegram and, and also what he writes about it, it also appears in Film as a Subversive Art, uh, gives us an idea of the kind of um, vision he had of cinema. I mean, basically, especially when he says, I refuse to be put off by anything that human beings are capable of or do or show or make films about. And that includes, of course, the horrible, either being hard to watch or maybe hard to look at, or also films that he would, from a more moral or political point of view, refuse, like Nazi propaganda films, but that he would also consider worth seeing uh, for an audience that that was capable of appreciating or being aware of the power of cinema and, and not wanting to suppress knowledge of what that could actually mean and how far that could come. There was a famous Nazi propaganda program at Cinema 16, which was introduced by Siegfried Krakauer at the time in New York. And that was created, of course, a scandal. I mean, especially for Vogel being a survivor of the Holocaust mm. um, to show these films. So that shows the kind of libertarian standing he had as a curator. Yeah, I guess we haven't mentioned 
that Vogel was born in Austria and came over to the U.S. when he was 16. Yeah, he was born in 21 in Austria, and, and he his family just barely escaped prosecution by German Nazism in 38. Uh, they, they fled Austria three months after the, the German occupation and, um, yeah, and went to, to exile. Via Cuba, they came to, to New York. So, uh, you know... It, w- well, what Richard Roud is reacting to with The House is Black is, you know, what he film, feels is the film's, I guess, ugliness or or shocking quality of seeing these yes. um, people with leprosy. But in fact, what Vogel, I think, is reacting to is the film's uh, unusual attitude in that it, you know, there there is a, a clinical voice on the soundtrack, but there's also the voice of Farouk Azad herself. Uh, reading whatever essentially lines of poetry and what 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 the what her she's words, reading from the Bible actually she's reading from the Old Testament what her narration suggests is a different way of looking at this is not viewing it as ugly is looking at it as 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 beautiful in its own way of of yes its own version of beauty and um, and that's what I would imagine impressed Vogel ab- about the film not just not just that it was different or potentially shocking, uh, but that it would, but that it had this within within its own twenty two or twenty three minutes had this built in juxtaposition, which he would like to see in the programs that he put together. Yes, certainly. I mean, it was this. Yeah, we might want to say humanist gaze and attitude of the film to you know to turn the eye to you know, th- that which might be aesthetically ugly, but um, which basically turns into, yeah, as you said, into beauty when, when it's considered, when, when it's, a, you know, a, let's say a loving gaze, I want to say. Mm. Can I quote the first line of the film? Because I think that says it all more or less. Please do. There's no lack of the ugly in the world. There would be even more ugly things in the world if we humans had closed our eyes before mm. it. But, but the human being helps and heals. Uh, I, I, I was I translated that from the German. Uh, that's why it was a bit. Yeah, I don't know if that's probably. The exact, bit, it sounds a bit different in the subtitles, I guess. Maybe that, not that, the exact yeah. translation on the subtitles, but it but it it's it's beautiful and and uh, it's it suits the the conversation very well. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to Joseph Killian, the Czech film. What what exactly uh, was Vogel responding to? About it. I guess we, maybe we should talk a little bit about it first. It's kind of a bureaucratic satire. It's probably, I think, the closest thing to a traditional narrative film of the four movies you selected here this week, but with these bursts of surreality. Yes. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think we can, it's, there's no harm in mentioning Kafka here. A lot of things are called Kafka-esque. Uh, the term has been used uh, maybe a bit um, volatilely, but, but here it really fits. I mean, it's, it's a film set in Prague. And it's the story of um, of a young man getting completely lost and and let's say um, lost in bureaucracy yeah. and and bureaucracy and uh, but already on, on a mission that is absurd. He's um, he had rented a cat to help uh, over his loneliness, and then um, when the cat starts to be obnoxious, he wants to return it to the place where he rented it from. And the place uh, has disappeared and doesn't seem to exist and nobody has ever heard of it. And it's obviously a satire or it's obviously a, a pretty bleak 
depiction of life under a totalitarian regime. And, and that was um, obvious for, for audiences in Oberhausen and, of course, for Vogel when, when he saw the film. But he, and, and he appreciated, of course, for that. He was, he was very, he was thirsty for films coming out of the uh, Eastern socialist countries that would not be uh, just blatantly propag propagandistic and that would show um, cinematic elegance. And, and, and he was aware that, that uh, Eastern European cinema was thriving under, under, under socialism, but that um, a lot of um, the really interesting films uh, were not, were not uh, allowed to be, to be exported and were censored, etc. He, he already discovered uh, the Polish uh, that something like, and he was enthusiastic about it, that something like a Polish new wave um, was about to exist. Uh, he already discovered that in 1958 in, in Brussels. He wrote a long article for Evergreen Review on this on this festival, and and he wrote a lot about the Polish films that he saw there, including the Polanski. From then on, he was aware that what we, the little we would get, he or his um, Western peers would get to see from Eastern Europe um, at the different festivals was was just the, the tip of the iceberg and probably not the best. So there was a there was an, an underground, so, so to speak, that was existing, and there were people, there were filmmakers there that made films that were not um, just um, state propaganda. And and so he would rejoice when when he when he would see this film. That's how I mentioned it. And you you mentioned Kafka, and we 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 probably should also mention that Joseph K is the central character in. Kafka's The Trial. So even in the title, or at least in the English translated title, or the the, the, the reference to Kafka is there. Yes. And what was the what was the afterlife or or? And Joseph is also the first name of Stalin, which I think plays a, plays a role here. But yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. The filmmakers had a, a connections to the to the Czech New Wave as it you know moved into feature filmmaking. Uh, Pavel Juracek, one of the co-directors wrote the script for uh, Vera Chitlova's Daisies, which is a major Czech New Wave film. What, what was Joseph Killian's life after, after Oberhausen? Did, it, did, did Vogel find a way to bring it to the US? Do you know about that? If, if yes, he was? did. He, um, the film was part of the, Vogel uh, organized a program of uh, new Czech cinema at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1967. That was a that was a major project of his that he worked on for I would say two years, judging from the correspondences I found and uh, get, bringing together these films. It and it usually um, it was both feature length and short films, and he would often create uh, double bills with them. And uh, and Joseph Kilian was in that program. I imagine that that Ivan Passer and Milos Forman had films included in that. Retrospect. So he so he would bring that film to yeah to New York um, in, through this program in in sixty seven. It's usually referred to as the film that started the uh, presence of the the Czech New Wave in in Oberhausen, uh, which then was a quite dominant uh, strain of the programming from from sixty four until until sixty eight sixty nine. The other repression of the Prague Spring was also a very traumatic experience for Oberhausen because there they had very they had built up very good relations to to check uh, to the Czech film scenes which all then became troubled after after spring 68 after summer 68 August 
Well, I, under, I understand that Joseph Killian became impossible to see in Czechoslovakia after the uh, Soviet invasion. Uh, that that Certainly. it just became, you know, a, a completely suppressed film. And since all of these four films are also part of the book uh, of Fogel's book, they all appear in the book, which connects them. Apart from the fact that they were all shown in Oberhausen, um, I might just again just read uh, the short synopsis that Fogel gave to the film. Please do in the book. Uh, so this film is, is basically represented by one film still, which shows a young woman opening a window uh, just to face a brick wall. Um, under socialism, Vogel writes, you are not supposed to face a brick wall when you open a window. Forerunner of the Czech thaw, this astonishing Kafkaesque allegory of Stalinism was the first intimation of things to come. Mordant, sophisticated, and secret, it was insidiously anti-establishment in its comments on bureaucracy, alienation, and the possible incomprehensibility of all human endeavor. So then there are two more films that uh, come from Fogel's last years with uh, Oberhausen. Uh, let's start with uh, the German film, Feine Spielwaren, which I would say uh, is a partly animated film that seems to rail against mass consumerist attitudes in the way that Vogel always railed against consumerist mass thinking in terms of cinema mm -hmm. uh, or cinema programming. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, in the way that it suggests that mass consumerist attitudes basically lead us to teach our children that war is fun and colorful and exciting. Would you agree? Yes. Yes, of course. I mean, this film uh, shares a lot of the, I mean, on the surface, of course, there's a lot of the concerns that Fogel would also be concerned with. Yeah, which is the ones that you say, basically mass consumerism or uh, the educating our children or the children then educating them to become soldiers uh, uh, and to become uh, war heroes. But of course, this film and, uh, had a, a lopsided view on this because it's, it's certainly a, it's an it's an East German film. You, you called it a German film, which I think is totally correct. And but of course, uh, looking at it now, we we must we must be aware that it was a production of East Germany, propagandistically directed against um, West Germany and its ally, the United States. Um, the film shows, well, basically, let me read again what Fugel writes about it in the book. Please. That gives us uh, the best synopsis we can have. This film is a slashing frontal attack skillfully edited on American war toys sold in West Germany, showing Nazi soldiers and tanks and Fokker von Richthofen and Stuka planes. Have the Americans forgotten that these planes bombed England? For good measure, the film ends with monster toys, torture chambers, the bloody mummy, and an operating guillotine. The conclusion is that even toys have been put at the service of aggressive American imperialism, which aims at achieving Hitler's unattained goal, the destruction of the socialist bloc. That's the summary of uh, basically the film and, and its message. And, uh, and Fogel, by summarizing it, would of course uh, summarize it in, in quotes, you know, being, as you said, being uh, supportive of, of uh, this kind of criticism of, of consumerist and, and, and militarist uh, uh, toy culture, but also being aware that it was, of course, a, a propaganda, a piece of propaganda, the film. 
Mm. And um, but he he was able to enjoy that um, as long as it was skillfully made, as he says here, he would appreciate it as a as a as an interesting piece of cinema. And I, I found the screening note actually that he wrote down in Oberhausen when he watched the film for the first time, and and he would definitely note prop, which means propaganda, but he would also leave little notes of uh, happiness and enjoyment that he had throughout watching the film. He really enjoyed watching it. <laughs> so uh, it was not the case that this was a film he brought to Oberhausen, but uh, discovered it there. Uh, he discovered it there, but I don't have proof that he ever showed it anywhere. Right. Um, uh, but he, but as I said, he he lists it under uh, in in one of the chapters of of, of his book, film as a subversive art. No, which is a chapter especially dedicated to propaganda, well-made propaganda films from from East Germany. Right. Of which there are, uh, there were many that he that he would see in Oberhausen, and maybe that gives me a cue to read uh, one little passage again from a letter that he wrote to to the festival makers in Oberhausen after the '65 festival. Um, first, a lot of technical things. He's asking them to make sure that next time 60 millimeter projection will be better, etc. And then he writes. I have left this point for last. It is important, complicated, and easily misunderstood. The game of democracy works only if it is played by all participants. If, as part of the motto of Oberhausen, certain films cannot be shown because they may offend any participating nations, then there were several films at last year's festival which should not have been shown because they were not in consonance with the motto. And then he lists several films that, that were straightforwardly anti-American. Um, and then he writes, actually, it is my opinion that such films can and should be shown at such a festival. I have confidence in the intelligence of the audience, or to put it differently, confidence in the democratic ideal. But if they are shown, then the West must have the right to also show any of the following films at the same festival. And then he lists uh, three um, films that he made up. Um, that kind of uh, would be anti-Soviet or anti-socialist uh, American propaganda films. And he concludes with the proposition, one solution would be for you to present each year a program of propaganda films, clearly labeled as such, out of competition. Then you could show such films from East and from the West, and it would be highly educational for everyone. I think this, uh, again, puts puts his, his, his idea and his provocative, expansive idea of curating uh, very well. And I'm, I'm sure he had provocation on mind a little bit in his admiration for the fourth film on the program, Gunvar Nelson's Kirsa Nicolina. Mm -hmm. Gunvar Nelson is a Swedish filmmaker living in the US and working, uh, I think, at the time she made this film in the Bay Area. Yes. Uh, in California. And so I, I'm wondering if, if this was a film that Vogel uh, was able to recommend to Oberhausen or if this was something, again, that he discovered uh, when he visited there. I didn't find proof that he mentions it, um, that he recommends it, but it was, um, it, was in the, it was shown in Oberhausen in 1970. And um, the selection process for the 1970 festival took place at the, at the Museum of Modern Art with the help of Willard van Dyck and Adrian Mencia. And Vogel was part of the selection process, but most of the correspondence would go between Oberhausen and the Museum of Modern Art. 
it was the last year that Fugel was involved in the in the American selection process officially, but he was certainly there when they when they pre-screened the films. But I didn't, I couldn't really verify who and when recommended this film. They might even have have seen it at, at a pre-screening in London, where they would also sometimes get to see uh, American films uh, before before the selection process in the in the United States took actually actually took place. Yeah, but certainly. It is a film that Vogel was was very fond of. A proof of that is again the book in which he, I would say, dedicates one of the longest, if not the longest, uh, synopsis. He dedicates a whole series of four pages to the film, and including five stills from it um, that really give a very interesting and, and clear idea of what what the film is about and how it looks. So he really um, values and, and appreciates this film in, in the book. Um, and and, that, and the, the chapter is called The First Mystery, Birth. And, and it, 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 it is on several films that, that show the, the birth of a, of a, human, of a human being. Um, I imagine he also includes Brackage's Window Water Baby moving. Yes, it is also part of that. It's, it lists um, six films and including Cursa Nicolina and Window Water Baby Moving. And uh, these are the these book. are films that all depict the, an actual birth? Yes, they're all films that depict the birth. And it, I'm just saying that this for this to really make a full chapter uh, in his book um, is already interesting. And and I, I'm pretty sure that Cursa Nicolina was one of, seems to have been the the, the trigger to, to do this. I mean, for this kind of editorial decision of his because all the images in the chapter are from this film. It's it's an interesting movie. I I I feel like of the four films, it's the one that is the real outlier in that it 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 could it could almost seem to be from uh, a, a a shallow viewing to be a home movie, uh, just just footage that a a couple took of the birth of their child. And it's not it's not Gunvor Nelson's baby. It's uh, she's she's filming some friends that she found. It's shot on sixteen millimeter, and I think that is also the outlier in these in this in these uh, four films, right? The, all the other films were shot on thirty five millimeter, um, and so it's oh, yeah. it uh, you know it 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 has that kind of at a casual glance a home movie look, but it 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 transcends that. How how would you Stay. It transcends it. Well, I, th I think it. Um, I mean, the home movie look is certainly what links it also to other then already tradition of American underground experimental avant-garde cinema, where you know a lot of the a lot of those films are have this inward perspective, or in, in or they show private life, they show the immediate family surroundings of the filmmakers, etc. Like the one that you mentioned, Stan Brakhage's um, take on 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 the on birth, which is window water baby moving, where he films the birth of his uh, of his child, his first child. Um, and I think when we compare these two, and yeah, thanks to your hint to that, I watched it again yesterday. Uh, I think what's interesting is that um, while Breckage films uh, the event as a very intimate event taking place between basically three people, which is himself filming uh, and occasionally filming himself 
his wife giving birth and the baby. Kirsa Nicolina is a film in which this event of birth is shown in a social context. We see um, friends uh, being in the room. Uh, we see uh, the mother, the, the mother on the bed, the father, um, the partner being there. But we also see a group of friends that that um, that help that are there. That we see someone who's apparently um, there to also to make sure that that um, you know nothing nothing that's that if any emergency comes up, you know, someone is there who knows how to how to handle things. I think that's makes it different. And I would assume that this also makes it for Fogel the more interesting take on the event than, than the Brackage film, although I'm sure that he appreciated the Brackage film for what it did. I mean it did the Brackage film, we should say, is from is from 1959. Right. So and, and I'm sure uh, Nelson had seen it as well. She Oh yes. I know yeah. she I know she was uh, a student of his films and 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 his contemporaries, Brackage's contemporaries. So certainly, I, yes. I know she saw it. So we are we'll we'll we're ending at the beginning, I guess, with birth. Uh, but uh, before we go, I want to just ask a, a couple more questions uh, first about your research and what your next step in your research on Amos Vogel will be, and 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 ultimately, uh, what what do you think it would re it will result in? Yeah, the research is ongoing. Um, a lot of the, I mean, several programs were were already kind of conceived and planned for to take place this year. Um, they were all canceled because of the pandemics. Both in Oberhausen and at the New York Film Festival. Uh, yes, right? Oberhausen, then the New York Film Festival, um, also in, at the, yeah, I, at the Cinematheque and at, at your place in Reds. Here, here, yes, that's why we're doing um, this. <laughs> yeah, this research has me, uh, has encouraged me to go a bit deeper into into Vogel, not only his relations to Oberhausen, which was the starting point for me. I hope to be able to collaborate with the Arsenal Film Institute for Film and Video Art in Berlin to host a program next year um, on Amos Vogel, uh, because this institution too uh, has long and strong connections with Amos Vogel that reach back until the early 60s, uh, which would then focus um, a little bit on um, on Fogel's connections to German institutions and specifically the late uh, middle and late 1960s, which were a time when the in, in, impact or influx of American independent films into Europe and Germany uh, created a, a wave and, and really changed uh, uh, created a film scene and expert or, or or let's say infused an existing film scenes in Germany and and really had a strong impact on the films that were henceforth produced by these young filmmakers in Germany and other European countries. So um, this program will look at the influence on a broader level on the influence of American experimental film on on European film scenes and and Fogel's role in this. Well, we were able to adapt and bring a, a version of the program we wanted to have in our cinema this fall uh, via this program, thanks to your curation. And again, I thank you for that. Can you tell us uh, lastly uh, how the Oberhausen Festival has uh, adapted to the current moment? Well, they, they have 
I mean, the, the lockdown or the decision that the festival would not be able to take place in, in cinemas came in March, which was two months before the festival this year. And they quickly decided to move online. Uh, so this festival took place online in 2020 and it was, uh, it was a success, most people would say. It was very well received. It worked technically quite well, I think. And, um, and so they would be prepared to do that again next year. But of course, we still hope that we might have the possibility to do a hybrid a festival that takes place in cinemas and part of the programs being online. But it also uh, created the idea that um, the festival uh, could provide online programs on a regular basis now that the technical situation is set up so that um, the Oberhausen through its website will become a, a window or a platform for for film throughout the year. I mean, this on, move to online also gave um, people a possibility to, to participate in the programs or to watch the films who would not have been able to travel, uh, not only because of the pandemic, but because of other financial or visa reasons or whatever. Um, to Germany. So yeah, the online, the move online also gives, uh, creates another audience. Yeah, it has a lot of setbacks, of course, especially for programs like mine that are based on mainly on analog prints. <laughs> uh, but I, I do see the, also the, 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 the merits and the, and the advantages. Well, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thanks again for thank you, Jim. selecting these films for our for our viewing yeah, and thanks for giving me this opportunity to to present this work and research. Thank you. Thank you.